Hi, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here once again with another China History Podcast episode, the fifth in a series where I've tried to cobble down a nice little handy greatest hits anthology from the history of China and Vietnam relations. Before we pick up where we left off last episode in the Ming Dynasty, later Lei down in Dai Viet, I wanted to mention a couple things. Don't be fooled by the term Vietnam used throughout my narrative. I'm saying Vietnam merely out of convenience. Not that any Vietnam scholars would ever dare stoop to listen to your humble narrator's amateur efforts to wander into their territory, but I'm sure there's a collective cringe whenever I mention this ancient land by its modern name of Vietnam. That comes later. For now, as we get closer to modern times, in Vietnam and in China, the nationalism really takes on a life of its own. With such a competitive relationship as it was, China and Vietnam, the most convenient and self-satisfying way to write the historical narrative is to cut it down to the nub and present it as 2,000 years of Viet resistance to Chinese aggression and attempts at occupation. It's so easy to say it all came down to that. But, like a lot of history, it was slightly more complicated. Right alongside all this China-Vietnam history from Zhao Tuo to Lei Tai Tao that we looked at so far, there was this whole other thing called Vietnam history also going on. And most of it had nothing to do with China and everything to do with domestic politics and Vietnam's surrounding friends and foes of Southeast Asia. China-Viet relations and everything that came out of it was merely something woven into the fabric of a much bigger history, a bigger history that I'm not wandering too deep into. There was more to our story than An Yong Vung, the Hai Ba Chung, Li Nam De, Ngo Quyn, and Lei Tai To. But you got to walk before you run. So by introducing all these great heroes and villains from this history, please keep in mind, they're just part of the story. And there's more to it than all these marquee names I'm throwing at you left and right. Check the references on my webpage for the best general history books you could ever hope for on the subject of Vietnam. I'll mention them later. Okay, we're into the later Lei dynasty down in Vietnam, founded 1428 by Lei Loi. Lei Tai To was his temple name, one of the greatest of the greatest in Vietnam history. Firstly, he led the resistance that put an end to the Ming Dynasty occupation of Dai Viet. And then, not wanting any further trouble, Lei Loi made a most sincere and humble peace with the Ming Xuanda Emperor. And that patched things up and gave the Lei rulers some time to consolidate their victory. It was anything but peaceful, though. Once Lei Loi passed in 1433, opposing factions at the Dai Viet court tried to fill that power vacuum left by the dynasty founder. By 1460, however, most of that had been worked out when along came the next big name in Vietnam history. This was Lei Loi's grandson, known as Lei Tan Tong, Li Sheng Zong. He ruled for a long time, 1460 to 1497. Among many other things, he carried the ball further along, consolidating reforms initiated by his grandfather. And remember how militarily 
Diviet was able to acquire and effectively use all these new gunpowder-based weapons technologies. Well, Champa, to the south of Diviet, they hadn't acquired these technologies. And they saw with trepidation what was happening with their northern rival. The Champa royal court, after understandably developing sufficient enough paranoia, ran to the Ming emperor for protection against this potentially dangerous and highly fortified neighbor to the north. All these years, Champa had been an on-again, off-again military threat to Dai Viet. Times had changed. With mild to lukewarm support coming from Ming China, the kingdom of Champa launched a Hail Mary and went to war with Lei Dynasty Dai Viet. Very quickly, in 1470, they were soundly defeated. And I can promise you, from here on out, you won't hear me talk about any threats to Dai Viet from Champa. Lei Tantaum personally led this fight against the Chams. It was a total mismatch from the get-go. The Champa army, they brought a knife to a gunfight. wasn't even close. It was over quickly. The king of Champa tried to sue for peace and strike some sort of bargain, but Lei Tantaum was looking to acquire some more property, so he wasn't willing to discuss any deals. The kingdom of Champa was taken, wrecked, and the whole royal family suffered a similar fate to that of northern Song Emperor Huizong at the hands of the Jurchens over 300 years before. Champa was thereby annexed and became the newest province of Dai Viet. That was their Louisiana purchase, only they didn't purchase it. There still remained a smaller rump version of Champa in the far south, but for the most part, their sad and tragic end began here. By 1490, the population of Dai Viet was nearing 4.4 million. The Red River Delta was easily the most densely inhabited region in all of Southeast Asia. Leiloi's reforms had already turned Vietnam into a mini-China, politically, and in the way institutions were set up and administered, as well as how they organized their military. Lei Tantong further consolidated these systems and was a noteworthy sponsor of Confucianism. The later Lei dynasty was a very golden time for the whole Ru school, and Confucian thought and traditions took hold in Viet society like never before and like nowhere else in Southeast Asia. By Lei Tantong's time in the 1470s, the later Lei was firing on all cylinders. It was becoming quite a force to reckon with. These earlier reforms had taken hold and were bearing fruit. It was just like you had with the Qin state beginning under Duke Xiao, when he laid the foundation for everything that was to follow, including the achievements of Qin Shi Huang. Relations with China were quiet during this period. Not that China didn't matter anymore, but right about here, so much starts to happen in both places. The bilateral relationship had moved far beyond what it had traditionally always been, going back to Zhao Tuo and the Nanyue Kingdom. Following Lei Tantong and into the 16th century, things began to take a turn for the worse in Dai Viet. At the dawn of the 16th century, the early glory of the Lei dynasty began to slide. A new power at court began to vie for control. This figure who rose to the fore during this messy period of betrayal, decline, and murder in the Dai Viet imperial court was a powerful military figure named Ma Tang Yung. Mo Tang Yung in uh, Mandarin. He was perfectly placed when the 
power struggle between all the various court factions got out of control and degraded into a civil war. From 1518 to 1521, the military victories over these rebels by Mak Dan-yong helped keep everything together for the Lei dynasty. The Lei emperor had fallen into the hands of the powerful Jin and Nguyen families who were lined up against the forces of Mak Dan-yong. The Jin and Nguyen clans, well, we mentioned them last episode in passing, they were early supporters of Lei Loi and were instrumental in bringing him to power and establishing the later Lei dynasty. Between 1520 to 1527, civil war raged in Dai Viet. And this powerful force in the military with plenty of political aspirations, Mak Dang Yung, in the end, he was the one who emerged victorious. And he ordered the lay emperor and leading figures from the Jin and Nguyen families killed and then set himself up as the emperor of his own ruling house, the Mak. This was not a stable period. And from day one, Mak Dang Yung was regarded by his opponents as a usurper, another Wang Mang. The Jin and Nguyen families retreated, regrouped, and began to plan a comeback for their team, the ruler of the Lei dynasty. As we've seen time and again, when the rulers in and around the present-day location of Hanoi needed a helping hand in their corner, preferably with a big, powerful army, it was always to China they went. In their plotting about how to rid themselves of Mak Dang Yung, these nobles sent the call north to the Jia Jing Emperor in China to enlist his support in the restoration of the deposed Lei Emperor. Now, the divided Ming court mulled this over. They didn't speak with one voice. One faction said, Dai Viet was always part of China. We should go in and restore the Lei and reap the benefits. But there were other factions who said, those Dai Viet people were not Chinese. They were different and troublesome. And we should just leave them be and just learn how to live next door to them in peace. The Mak dynasty served as a kind of line of demarcation between the Lei dynasty, as they would have liked to have been remembered, and the Lei dynasty, well, how they actually ended up. Their fate didn't stray that far from what happened during the last decades of the Eastern Han in China. The Jins and the Nguins never let up in their attempts to get rid of Mak Dang Yung. They were able to seize back some lands in the Red River Delta, but they, they couldn't dislodge him from the capital. The Jin and Nguyen's, however, in 1540, were ultimately successful in their appeals to the Ming Jiaqing Emperor to send some military support. So 110,000 Chinese troops were sent to the Guangxi-Vietnam border. And these Chinese troops carried the following threatening message from the Ming emperor that all would be forgotten, quote, if the Mak, regretting their crime, abandon their imperial title, reform their hierarchy, and come to the frontier with long cords around their necks, leading their officers and their people, and to await with submission the decision from China, end quote. That referenced the cords around their necks, that referred to the cords used by the Bai Yue, who submitted to the might of the Qin dynasty back in the 3rd century BCE. The Mak took stock of their situation, and let me quote the letter Mak Dang Yung is said to have written to the Jia Jing Emperor. I lifted these quotes from Yale professor Ben Kiernan's excellent 
excellent monograph on Vietnam history. Quote, Should your gaze illuminate my sincerity and forgive my transgression, I will be able to start anew. The land and the people all belong to the heavenly court. In the past, I already gave you a true accounting, presented maps, and awaited your verdict. I only long for heavenly generosity day and night, the way grain longs for spring rains. How can there be anything else to say? End quote. Boy, he really laid it on thick there. And to demonstrate that this was no idle talk, the Ming history recorded that, quote, a few months later, Mak Dong Yung led a number of ministers to the border on foot and with lengths of cord around their necks. On reaching the Ming camp, they crawled in barefoot and, kneeling towards the north, presented their statement of acquiescence, together with the records of their land, population, and administrative and military organization, to the Ming general. End quote. For all this, he was forgiven, and Vietnam was reduced to the status of less than a kingdom and was renamed by the Chinese Annan. For the Mak dynasty... Between 1539 and 1600, there were 40 major battles between the forces backing the lay emperor and the Mak armies. It was like a romance of the Three Kingdoms period, but with only two opposing forces. By 1592, the Mak lands, under their direct control, had dwindled down to a small area around the Guangxi border with China, where... He received nominal protection. By the 1670s, the Mak were no longer even mentioned in the official histories. What ultimately happened to the Mak dynasty? Probably they just moved to the China side of the border in order to escape the final blows from the Jins, who had emerged from this civil war period as the most powerful military and political force in the land. By this time, there was already a civil war going on between the Jins in the north, based in Hanoi, and the Nguins in the south, based in Wei. The Nguins had made themselves at home in the former Champa-controlled lands. The Chams by now were either being assimilated or pushed farther and farther from their former homelands. Not the first ethnic group who ever suffered that fate, and not the last either. Their glorious past was now behind them. The lay emperor was still around, but was merely a symbol of the state and had no authority. He was a prisoner in a Confucian world. The Civil War period in Vietnam was called the Jin Nguyen War, 1627-1673. It witnessed an explosion in trade and commerce. The whole age of exploration had already happened by this time, and the new world that emerged from this period had had an immediate impact on the course of Vietnam history, not to mention up in China, too. The Jesuits had already established their base in Macau, and all the great trading nations of Europe were trying to feel around the edges out in those seas to determine the best way to capitalize on all the commodities and exotica of China and Southeast Asia. Tea had already been brought to Europe for the first time in 1610, and once... Royalty gave that the thumbs up. No one could ever get enough of it. Tea became a magnet, like spices, that drew explorers and merchants to this far eastern part of the world. This period also saw the first Catholic missionaries poking their nose around Vietnam, looking for their first converts. In the middle of this upheaval between the opposing forces of the Jin and Nguyen, 
1644, there was a little dynasty change up in China. The Ming fell, and now the Manchu Qing ruled over China. By this time, the south of Vietnam had overtaken the northern Red River Delta region as the commercial center of the country. By the 1600s, Westerners were already not an uncommon sight down there. The Drin lords controlled the north part of Vietnam as well as the person of the lay emperor. As with Cao Cao, during the Eastern Han, it was useful to have the emperor under their direct control to prop up their legitimacy. And in the southern part of the country, including all the former Champa lands, the Nguyen lords ruled. The Nguyen's had tried to cut a separate deal with China to try and get recognition as an independent vassal kingdom unrelated to the Jin-controlled north. They didn't get it. The Qing court, in its infinite wisdom, wouldn't recognize them as an independent kingdom, vassal or otherwise. Their support for the moment was still with the Jins and their puppet, the lay emperor. For a while, at least, the Nguyen lords decided it was in their best interest to just continue on as a de facto independent kingdom. China recognition or no China recognition. And in 1750, the Nguyen ruler didn't feel like waiting anymore and declared himself an emperor, a rival to the Jin-controlled lay emperor in the north. Here's where Vietnam first gets a taste of what it's like uh, being two different countries in one. There was already a pretty distinct difference between the cultures of the north, central part, and south of Vietnam. It took a lot of time to meld everything into one national identity. That's another reason why it's, it's too premature to talk about a Vietnam political entity or a united Vietnamese culture. But we say Vietnam just for convenience sake. You know what I mean. 1770s and 80s, this state of affairs had degraded to a period of three-way civil war in Vietnam. The Jin clan in the north, with the lay emperor in their corner, the Nguyen's in the south, and now a new and dangerous rebel force, the Day Sun rebels in the central part of the land. Surely you remember the Day Sun rebellion, 1771-1802, from that past episode on the Chinese pirate queen, Zheng Yisao. That was episode CHP 174. The Day Sun rebels were known to recruit fighters from amongst these South China Sea pirates and other Chinese secret societies. While the Jin and Nguyen's contended for supremacy, there were three brothers from the village of Dae Sun who started an uprising against the oppressive Nguyen lords down there. Not to confuse you or anything, but there were three brothers, all surnamed Nguyen, Nguyen Van Nhat, the eldest, Nguyen Van Hui, and Nguyen Van Lu. Nguyen Van Hui is the name of my father-in-law, but he wasn't born until the late 1920s. The story was sort of reminiscent of the Dazi Xiang uprising at the end of the Qin. Playing the Chen Sheng role was the oldest brother, Nguyen Van Nhat, who ran afoul of the law and, finding himself in impossible circumstances, he headed for the hills, whipped up popular discontent against the rule of the Nguyen's, and set himself up as a rebel leader. He forced land reform wherever he went, which is always a good way to get the peasants on your side. He also allied himself with the hill tribesmen and chams living on the edge. The focus of this growing Taesan rebellion 
shifted toward the Nguyen rulers of the south and central part of Vietnam. The Tay Sun rebels by 1773 were able to carve out their own slice of Vietnam in the central part. The Jin clan was still lording over things in the north, and they saw the Tay Sun as a threat just as much as the Nguyen's. So they invaded from the north to try and snuff out this uprising. Throughout the 1770s and into the 1780s, Vietnam was locked in a three-way civil war with alliances that shifted with the circumstances. The Drin, in 1775, had even allied themselves with the Tay Sun and went after the Nguyen lords, sacking their capital and pushing the Nguyen clan all the way south to their fortified stronghold of Saigon. Not called by that name yet, and they were neutralized for the time being. Then the Taesan armies did eventually attack Saigon, and in the aftermath of their victory, any and all Han Chinese found down there were killed. This was in 1776, and this massacre of Chinese civilians who had been on the side of the Taesan was going to turn their sympathies from the rebels to the Nguyen's, and this becomes important later on. In 1778, the oldest Tae brother, Nguyen Van Yak, broke his alliance with the Jin and declared himself an emperor. This is where the Tae dynasty comes in. The Nguyen's were already finished off in the south. Once that was done, the Tae armies took their fight to the north. And in 1786, after 200 years ruling in the north of Vietnam, the Jin clan fell to the forces of the Taesun. And the following year, 1787, that's it for the later Lei dynasty. Or was it? The defeated Lei dynasty emperor, the last one, he ran to the Qing Qianlong emperor in Beijing in 1788 and enlisted his support to put his dynasty back on the throne in Vietnam. The Qianlong emperor ordered a Qing army of 200,000 troops to march south and restore this lay emperor. And in October, they went right in, like they did in dynasties past, and in 1788, they defeated the Taesun and captured their capital at Tanglong, or Hanoi, and once again, the lay dynasty was back in business. If you could remember from a billion episodes ago, Emperor Qianlong had been sending his armies out in all directions in his attempts to pacify all these neighbors in present-day Xinjiang, Tibet, Myanmar, Taiwan, and down in the south, too, against Dai Viet in 1788-1789. This invasion of Dai Viet to restore the Lei was only a part of the Qianlong Emperor's ambitious Ten Great Campaigns, the Shi Quan Wu Gong. They ran from about the mid 1750s to the early 1790s. And let me just say, they didn't all end that great. It certainly didn't go as expected for the Qing military in the case of Dai Viet. As soon as they captured Tang Long and kicked the Tae Sun out, someone raised a bat signal or something to Nguyen Van Hui down in Hui. He was the middle Taesun brother and the most skilled on the battlefield. The Taesun rebellion, being a dyed-in-the-wool populist uprising, always enjoyed the support of the masses and the people who lived away from the coast and the plain. Nguyen Van Wei rallied his large army and led his Taesun army north to take on the Chinese army. And anyone who thought 
that that offensive of 1968 was such a novel, a new idea? I think they got the idea from Nguyen Van Wey, who 179 years earlier launched a surprise attack on the Chinese during that, that Lunar New Year holiday. And in a stunning upset, the smaller Daesun army defeated the whole Qing army and killed most of their top brass in the fighting. This was the Battle of Ngothoi Dongda. I know it probably doesn't ring a bell with too many of you. I can assure you everyone who went through the public school system in the Socialist Republic of Vietnam knows of this battle. It's right up there with the greatest of Vietnam's patriotic victories. With China out of the picture, once and for all, I might add, the Tay Son put an end to the Lei Dynasty, founded by Lei Loi in 1428. And also, for his achievement against the Chinese and his victory at the Battle of Ngothoi Tong Ta, this middle Taesung brother, Nguyen Van Hui, my father-in-law's namesake, he's also revered in the country as a national hero. This clash in early 1789 between the Taesung forces and the Qing army would be the last time China and Vietnam faced off on land, on opposite sides, until the 1979 border war that we'll hopefully get to next episode. Vietnam was now essentially unified for the first time since the fall of the Mok Dynasty of the 1530s. 1500 to 1800, mid-Ming to mid-Qing in China. That was a period in Vietnam where central power sort of shifted back and forth among various contending parties. This was particularly so during the hundred years from 1570 to 1670. The Trinh Civil War itself lasted from 1627 to 1672. After the Sun vanquished the Nguyen lords in the south, you recall there was a reign of terror that followed. The royal court was done away with, again, reminiscent of the final days of the northern Song. Huizong and the whole Zhao royal family were carted off to China's version of northern Siberia. But you'll remember, one of Huizong's sons, the ninth one, he slipped through the fingers of the Jurchens and managed to get away. And this prince named Zhao Go, surely you remember, he was able to escape, organize a new government, and reconstitute the Song Dynasty in and around present-day Hangzhou, home of Alibaba. This was the southern Song emperor Gao Zong. This Vietnam version of Gao Zong was named Nguyen Phuc An. Did any of you ever wonder... How in the heck did the French insinuate their way inside Vietnam's perfect little world? How did that whole Indochine thing begin? Right here. He was a royal who escaped from the reign of terror being meted out by the Sun against uh, his clan. Now, as riveting as this history is, the French in Vietnam, I'm going to fly as high up as Felix Baumgartner again and just dish up the big picture as it relates only to our story. If I start wandering off on any of my patented tangents, this may go on for months. As the title suggests, let's try and stick to the China-Vietnam relations part of the story. You see, once the foreigners started coming, that changed a lot of the dynamic in Vietnam with respect to the government. And I guess you could say the same about China. Because of the Hai Jin, remember that? The founding Ming Hongwu Emperor's ban on trade, his extreme way to deal with the cursed Japanese pirates who operated with impunity along the southeast China coast, 
That ban on coastal trade lasted 1371 to 1567. Now, putting an end to that was one of the first things the Longqing Emperor did as soon as his father, the Jiajing Emperor, breathed his last. This ban on all foreign trade got lifted, but Japan was still cut out of the deal. No Japan trade allowed in China. Traders and merchants, well, they're a funny lot. Sometimes their patriotism tends to vary indirectly to the magnitude of potential profits at stake. So the Japan trade, although banned in China, shifted down to Vietnam, to the south-central part. And what was already a thriving trading center for more than a thousand years got a whole lot better. Wherever there was a good potential market, the Portuguese were usually the first to find it. And wherever they went, the Dutch, Spanish, English, and French were sure to follow. So by the 17th century, Vietnam, trade was booming. And the South was particularly bustling. It was a much different culture down in the South. South of Hue, the Chams had been conquered, but their culture remained. And whatever fit well with those who had migrated to those lands, it became part of a new, ever-emerging Southern Viet culture. Whereas the North of Vietnam embraced Confucius, and the South... They said you could keep your Kongzi. What they mainly wanted from China was Buddhism. But Catholicism also had taken hold. It first came to Vietnam in 1615. That was the date of the first mission. The story so many of us are familiar with in China history, the Jesuits, Ruggieri, Ricci, Shalvan Bell, Verbiste, with no Plico, Chinese, Pod, De Francis, nothing. They had to figure out the Chinese language. Sink or swim, the locals weren't going to learn Latin in order to be converted. Once they nailed the language, there was no stopping them. Well, Kangxi Emperor, he stopped them, but only for a while. You could almost use the same script in China for Vietnam. Not the exact same script, but how the establishment of Catholicism in Vietnam was rolled out, what followed in its wake. It wasn't the same story as in China, but the two histories certainly rhymed, right down to all the martyrs who were regularly cut down in the service of the faith. Pierre-Joseph Georges Pignot, better known as Pierre Pignot de Bienne, he was the French Catholic missionary who gave refuge to the young Nguyen Phuc An when he was on the run from the Taishan army, when they were trying to wipe out all Han Chinese in the south. This is a long and interesting story, the concatenation of events that happened after Pierre Pignot de Bien tied his fate in 1777 to that of Nguyen Phuc An, or Nguyen An, as he's also known. The story of Indochine starts here. Let me just skip to the punchline. This former scion of the Nguyen lords who ruled in the south of Vietnam, Nguyen An, he, with little help from his friends, the French, defeated the Taishan, put an end to their dynasty in 802, and paved the way for Nguyen An to become the founding emperor of a new Dai Viet kingdom. Perhaps you've heard of Nguyen An's regnal name. He's more recognizable in the history books as Emperor Yalom. And this Nguyen dynasty that he founds, it ends up being Vietnam's version of the Qing. That is, it was the final one in Vietnam history, 
and the one who had to bear the brunt of European imperialism. One thing you could say of the Nguyen dynasty, the court officials took to the Chinese way of doing things. This dynasty built their whole government infrastructure on the Chinese model. Vietnamese was dropped as the language at court, and Chinese was brought back. The Qing legal code was adopted, and the capital was moved to Hue, not a place connected to Vietnam's more traditional and ancient past in the Red River Delta region. But the Nguyen lords did rule around Hue, and Nguyen An was certainly one of them. So the government was a hybrid of both Chinese and traditional local ways. And early on, a message was sent by the Nguyen court to the Qing Jiaqing emperor. I always get him mixed up with the Ming Jiaqing emperor. Uh, that requested China to not call their country Dai Viet anymore. The new name they wished to be known as was Nam Viet. The same Nan Yue name that Zhao Tuo had given these lands 2,000 years prior. But the officials in China, who attended to these kinds of matters on behalf of the emperor's government, in 1804, for their own good reasons, insisted the country instead be called Vietnam, or Yunnan. Now, it wouldn't stay this way for long, however. And besides, the Qing government still referred to the place as Annam. So, remember that. 1804, the political entity known as Vietnam enters the history books. The founding emperor of the Nguyen dynasty, Ya Long, if anyone should get the blame for letting all the French in the back door, it's him. During his reign, it was a golden time for French advisors and missionaries. Western colonialism had arrived. More than 300 French made their way to the Nguyen court in Hue for various consulting and advisory roles. In China, they were just starting to realize how dangerous the British were to their way of life. And the worst hadn't even started yet. As it happened time and again throughout Chinese history, going back to the Qin, any time there was some sort of distraction in China, Vietnam could breathe a little easier. This was one of those times. France had big plans for Vietnam, and with their foot in the door having been instrumental in Nguyen An's victory over the Tay Son, they got the government to let in a heck of a lot of Catholic missionaries. As I said, the experiences many missionaries went through in Vietnam were similar to the missionary history recorded in China. Many got killed or tortured or worse. It was a strange faith in the eyes of the locals. The earliest years of preaching Christianity are filled with these stories and also of great successes as well in the harvesting of souls of the newly faithful. To protect the faith and the lives of these missionaries, armies were needed to make sure they weren't molested by the locals who meant them harm. And this led to the necessity of beefing up France's military presence. Like with the British East India Company, who needed a military force to protect their commerce, France's fig leaf for bringing in their own military assets involved protection for those proselytizing the Catholic faith. Don't forget, while all this is going on down in Vietnam, 1850s, 1860s, China was reeling from military defeats and unequal treaties. The wacky world of Western imperialism was now going at a full boil up there. So given the dynamic of what was happening in Southeast Asia at this time, France was very determined to create their own little perfect colonial world down in Vietnam. 
the souls that could be saved, the fortunes that could be earned, and the projection of French power in a place that mattered, the faction in France that won out in the end, they felt it was worth risking the nation's blood and treasure out in Vietnam. Let's close out this episode with a little overview on how France was able to parlay their support of Nguyen An back in 1802 into a whole big colonial enterprise that lasted until 1954. And as part of that whole big thing, we'll also take another look at the Sino-French War. I know we looked at that in previous episodes. Doesn't hurt to rehash that. I guess you could say trouble started brewing over the size of the payoff the French were expecting in return for lending their muscle to place the Yalong Emperor, Nguyen An, on the throne. It had been a long and bitter political fight back in Paris as far as the size of the French commitment in Vietnam. If there was no return on this investment, then what the heck was the reason to take all those risks to back this royal? This was a pure case of the old Chinese saying, Tong Chuang Yi Meng. Same bed, different dreams. This emperor, Ya Long, he had no intention whatsoever of handing over the keys to the kingdom or allowing the French to have the kind of free hand they were expecting. And keeping in tune with the times all over Asia, the French decided to take instead what wasn't being offered. How to do that? Well, 1858, we're off and running. The Cochin China Campaign. A martyred French missionary conveniently served as France's Gulf of Tonkin incident to light the fuse for this one. The battle drum sounded, Spain joined in the fray. They were not too far away over in the Philippines, and, well, they were pretty Catholic too, you could say. So this expedition to punish Vietnam was their fight too. 1858, French forces attacked and took Da Nang. The following year, in early 1859, they were successful in capturing Saigon and a few other provinces. There, they quickly consolidated their presence and hold over the government. And this southern portion of Vietnam became their base, and Saigon, the capital. On April 13, 1862, through a combination of aggression and diplomacy, the Vietnam government had to cede three provinces to China. And this became known as Cochin China. Xin. Perhaps many of you have heard that term before or seen it on old maps of Vietnam. Over the next several years, the French land grab in Vietnam continued in a familiar manner. From Saigon, in their Xin stronghold, they began their bloody push to the north. Vietnam was to the north of Cochinchin, Cochin China, and north of that was Tonkin, the traditional, ancient, and most Sinicized part of Vietnam. And the French didn't have their colonial eye just on Vietnam. They had much bigger plans in Southeast Asia. Once the Second Opium War ended in 1860, all the traders from all the great nations who did business in China and Southeast Asia gorged on a feast of imperial proportions. What France was doing down in Vietnam was happening in spades up in China with the other Western powers. While France was trying to enlarge their footprint in Vietnam, there was an incredible amount of local pushback. In their corner, to counter French aggression, the Vietnam government was assisted by both China and the Black Flag Army, led by Liu Yongfu. Liu was from that General area, born near the Guangxi-Vietnam border. 
he had gained a lot of street cred for the success of his mercenary black flag army of ex-Taiping Heavenly Kingdom rebels and how they put away their opponents. Liu Yongfu allied himself with the Viets and was given an official military rank, and he began to make his name as a formidable foe to the French army wherever they faced off. The Black Flag Army had established a base along the south bank of the Red River at a town west of Hanoi called Sun Tei. There, Liu Yongfu dug in and became a permanent fixture in this sliver of Tonkin, Dongjing, the northern part of Vietnam, the region we focused on since part one of this series. Liu Yongfu and his army, well, they stopped French explorer Francis Garnier, who in his bid to carve out an alternative route uh, from Vietnam into Yunnan province, instead tried to take Tonkin in 1873. He took a string of citadels along the Red River, but in the end, he was killed by the Black Flag troops. A treaty of peace and alliance was signed in Saigon on March 15, 1874. Now, among other things... It allowed France to trade, promote Christianity, and enjoy sovereignty over this southern Cochin China area only. So this, well, this calmed the waters, but not for long. The Qing imperial government in Beijing did not like what they saw going down there. The Tongzhi emperor, that is to say his mother, Cixi Taiho, and her coterie still regarded Vietnam as a tributary state. And with France doing what they were doing, trying to make themselves at home in Tonkin like they were. Well, it made the Qing look bad. So there was a lot of discussion about trying to reassert China's traditional status over Vietnam. And that meant the French had to go, or at least tone down their activities. Several years later, in April 1882, Henri Riviere made another go at getting a permanent French settlement established in Tonkin. And this 14-year-long effort, like Garnier years before, saw Riviere perish early on in the line of duty at the hands of the Black Flag Army in his attempt to take Hanoi. After these two significant defeats of Garnier and Riviere, France decided to get serious. Then for the rest of 1883, the tide turned, and now France was winning one encounter after another and inflicting some serious pain on the Chinese and Black Flag armies, even pushing them out of their Sante base. With Hanoi threatened and the Chinese and Black Flag armies both licking their wounds, France and China decided to go to the negotiating table. China's chief foreign diplomat in those days was, of course, Li Hongzhang. He sat down with France's representative in Tianjin, Francois-Ernest Fournier, and they tried to hammer out a deal down in Tonkin. Now, this Li-Fournier Accord, or Convention, of May 11, 1884, this document was meant to put out this brush fire going down in Tonkin between China, who, together with the Black Flag Army, was backing the Nguyen Dynasty, and France, who were, well, they were in it for themselves. Li Hongzhang promised he'd pull all Chinese troops out of Tonkin. But he didn't say when. There were a multitude of trade and commercial-related issues that also got worked out, and disputes related to the demarcation of the China-Tonkin border were also settled. This Li Fournier convention was supposed to calm things down in Tonkin between China and France. 
The French thought the Chinese troops would bolt as soon as the ink was dry on the agreement, but they lingered, and fighting still continued. Mind you, there was a lot more than this happening in Vietnam. I'm only presenting what was happening relative to the subject of Vietnam and China. France, China, the Black Flag Army of Liu Yongfu, they kept on fighting. But France was proving to be quite formidable, and by the summer of 1884, the two Chinese armies, the Guangxi and Yunnan armies, were in tatters. France saw China back on her heels and found the perfect time to go in for the kill. But... On June 23, 1884, the diminished Chinese army caught up with a French military force at a place called Baclay. The event was recorded in the history books as the ambush at Baclay. It went pretty bad for the French, and due to the nature of the attack and the circumstances that were spun out of control by the wing in Paris, hot to carve out their empire, this incident became the Casas Belli, for the Sino-French War of August 1884 to April 1885. And coming so soon, practically on the heels of the Lee-Fournier Agreement. <laughs> that didn't last long. Fighting between French and Chinese forces in Tonkin, this northernmost portion of Vietnam, the traditional heartland, it was surprisingly evenly matched, but the French still had the edge. Where China was defeated in the Sino-French War was on the sea. The way Qing Dynasty politics operated at the time, it was next to impossible to get the country to act as one to counter this threat from France. Whatever assets China had in the south had to face the French on their own. No help was coming from the north of China, and certainly not from any vessels of the Beiyang Navy. When the French Navy sailed up the China coast and blew up the Chinese naval dockyard in Fuzhou and set up a blockade around the Yangtze, China was forced to cave in to France. This all led to the Treaty of Tianjin, June 9, 1885, one of the most unequal of the unequal treaties. As far as France's takeaway from that gimme, their protectorate over Annam became a reality. China had to back off and stop complaining about the French encroaching on their turf. No more tributary state down in Vietnam. That belonged to France now. And so China in the 1880s and all the way practically until the early 1950s gets caught up in all their own history. We've gone through all that in past episodes. China had a lot more on their plate than Vietnam to deal with. So when we reconvene next episode, we'll enter the 20th century and see how everything shakes out with respect to China-Vietnam relations, especially when the Vietnam communists arrive on the scene. That's... Obviously, the glue that's going to bind China and Vietnam later on. You sure won't want to miss that. We're going to try and stick as close to the script as possible. I'm not going to cover the first Indochina War, 1946 to 1954, or the Vietnam War, or Second Indochina War, as it's also called, 1955 to 1975. I'm only going to talk about China's involvement in all that. Then we'll finish off with the general state of affairs since the 1970s, 80s, and into the present. I'm pretty sure we can do all that in part six. So please do come back for that. Okay, on a perfectly warm Sunday, my birthday today, here in the City of Angels, this is your host and narrator, Laszlo Montgomery, signing off. Take care, everyone. We'll see you again next time.